0: Sunday morning, January 14, 2007, Sunday School Lesson on the Trilogy of Faith, Judgment, and Eternal Life. Today we are studying a lesson that has been described by the lesson writer as a probe connecting faith judgment and eternal life and as i began to study the lesson i began to realize that this doesn't begin to constitute a probe it is a definition of terms which within itself was very satisfactory but the connection between the two the three is so dynamic so powerful I didn't want to leave it where the lesson writer had left it. Now this is no criticism of him. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He interpreted the fifth chapter of John based upon the statements made by John. But if the purpose of the lesson was to probe a connection, it was lost. And I felt it needed to be revived. So. The lesson itself is written in, basically, Religion 201. But I'm going to teach it on the basis of Religion 101. I'm going to reduce it to the level of planting roots and branching out limbs to connect, because there needs to be a solid continuity that ranges throughout the trilogy that were identified in the lesson. It is so powerful a lesson, in fact, that I said to Carlene, I don't want to just simply present this lesson orally because so much of it is lost. I'm going to transcribe it into a manuscript and pass it out to the class members. Well, there's are just so many days in a week. Most of them are taken up in preparation of the lesson itself. So I started on such a document. I'll finish it next week. And then next week I'll have here for you a document on today's lesson (coughs) written in such a way that you can mull over certain aspects, raise questions in your own mind, whatever. But at least you'll have it in order to look more deeply into the significance of what today's lesson purports to be. The trilogy of faith judgment and eternal life that covers it all but the place of beginning is always at the place of creation creation itself and the many ways in which we look at the development of humanity whether through God instantaneously created us or whether we emerged over a period of time through evolution. That's strongly debatable today and is continuing to be debated among many quarters. But that has no meaning at all for our lesson today. We can put all of that into the past. For the fact remains, creation for you begins the day you were born. Anything prior to the day of your birth is only histor- of historical interest. What happens from the moment of your birth onward is the theology that affects your life. And each of us was came into being at the moment in which we breathed and took our place in the world to begin the journey. And with our birth, came what we inherited from the past, mainly a sinful nature. Now, theologically, this is referred to as original sin, held by many, dismissed by many, as to the fact that we inherit the sin of Adam, and therefore it is an original sin that we inherit and not commit. But whether there is original sin, and John Wesley believed that there was, and whether there was original sin, and our Roman Catholic brethren believe that it is because birth is necessary for an infant to wash away original sin, or whether we look to the words of Job in which he said, man is born of woman and in few days is full of trouble which means that we don't bring sin into life with our birth, but it isn't long until we're admired in sinful living. And it is that point at which our journey begins today. We are creatures who are buffeted by sin from the moment of our birth. Life was meant to be much greater than that. God envisioned a much better life life than a sinful environment in which we are to live. And so the process toward realigning ourselves with God begins at the moment of our birth. The lesson writer has identified it as faith. The faith is dependent upon grace. Now, many efforts were made to bring about reconciliation between humanity and God through the behavior through the way in which we live our lives through our actions we just can't live that good a life because the demands of God are too great a demand for spiritual perfection God can't be satisfied with anything less than spiritual perfection and we are incapable of measuring up to that simply because we are surrounded by sin even when we reject it we constantly battle it One never becomes immune to the tenets of sin because the pleasures of sin are always identified and projected before us in order to tempt us out of the way. And so it was God's will that we find reconciliation. Knowing that we did not have the power nor the strength in order to bring about that reconciliation, he interjected himself. If we can't do it, he can do it for us. And so grace came into being as a part of our lives. Now, there are three tenets of faith, of grace. The first one is prevenient grace. John Wesley talked to great lengths about prevenient grace, which simply means grace before grace. One aspect of grace, of preventive grace, is that when a child is born, he is unable to make a choice for himself whether to follow Christ or the ways of the world. Therefore, God binds that infant to himself until that child is old enough to make a decision on his own. A child born during that period of his life is automatically admitted into paradise to be with God. He doesn't die in sin. Because of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace runs out. When the time comes that you can make a decision for yourself, then you're no longer protected by that prevenient grace. But there is a second aspect of prevenient grace, and that is in us a yearning for God. Who of us would turn to God if there was not a yearning? And why would we yearn for God if we've never seen him? if we don't encounter him on the street and we're surrounded by physical temptations that we can see and feel, these are the things that are constantly magnetically attracting us to themselves. But what about God? We can't even describe God adequately because everybody sees God in one way or another differently from everybody else saint augustine said there is a yearning in the breast of every person for god and there will no be there will be no satisfaction until that person's soul finds its rest with god that is the yearning for that which we have not experienced that emptiness in our lives that remains there all of our lives until we fill that emptiness with christ and his grace and so it is the yearning That is a part of prevenient grace so that we never escape the fact that there is someone better something better which we have not yet achieved there's one word of scripture that's alarming in which it says my spirit will not prevail with you always if the time comes when we no longer yearn for god then the unpardonable sin has become a part of our lives, and there's no hope at all. But what extremism there is when God no longer lures us with his love as we experience in prevenient grace. So prevenient grace is that grace before grace that entices us to God and protects us when we are incapable of protecting ourselves. And the third and the second meaning of grace is saving grace. This is where God takes the initiative in our lives. Grace is threefold. prevenient grace, saving grace, and the grace that stays with us after we have committed our lives to Christ to enable us to live the good life the grace that leads to perfection so the second grace is saving grace we can't do it ourselves we have said repeatedly i'm good enough to get to heaven if so and so gets there because i'm so much better than he hallelujah that you're better i wish all of us were better but that won't get us to heaven it's been tried and it won't work because we can't be good enough a great preacher of the second world war Leslie Weatherhead, a British Methodist minister told about a young woman in his parish who at a very young age was forced to take care of the needs of other people she grew up into young womanhood and all of the time that she had spent in the world was spent in meeting the needs of other people her health broke and she came at the point of dying hardly having entered into life certainly into maturity and on her deathbed a friend said how are you going to justify your life before God and she said I'll show him my hands well there are two aspects to that number one even though her life was given to helping other people totally that would not breach the gulf. You can't attain salvation by works. But the second aspect is, if you have received salvation, then that is a mark of that salvation because we are to do those things once we have been reconciled to God. Jesus said, you saw me hungry and you didn't feed me. You saw me thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. You saw me naked and you gave nothing to clothe me. And there, on the basis of that, he separated the sheep from the goats because the evidence of doing those things is evidence of reconciliation. The absence of doing those things is evidence that reconciliation has not taken place. So grace is God's acceptance of us, not through who we are and what we have done, but because we respond to his love. It is the power of love that brings about reconciliation between us and God. And Jesus' entire ministry was spent talking about the kingdom of God and how to get into it. And based upon all of his teaching, uppermost is loving God and loving your neighbor. That was the crux of the gospel. When asked, what is the greatest of the laws? He said, the greatest is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like to it, loving your neighbor as yourself. It is that kind of love that brings about reconciliation and not by works. And then the third aspect of grace is that grace that enables us to withstand temptation enables us to overcome obstacles and we nurture that grace by our bible reading by our prayer by our coming together like this and nurturing ourselves on the faith of other people we do not face the future alone by our own strength but it is undergirded by our relationships and our spiritual disciplines minister was visiting a member of his church who had stopped coming and as they sat before the hearth the minister mentioned the fact you used to be a vital part of the church you no longer are what happened and he said well I finally decided that I didn't need the church I could be a Christian on my own And the minister took the poker and pulled the coal out of the fire to the side. And they both sat looking at it and watched it grow ash and cold. And he said, that's what happens when you remove yourself from your Christian community. That religion isn't an isolated experience. It is a community experience. John Wesley said, there's no such thing As an individual Christian, all Christians are comprised of those with whom they live. So it is a matter of grace by which we are able to persevere when we give our lives to Christ. All of this is contingent upon the fact that we have a desire to reconcile ourselves and are willing to pay the price. We too often say that Jesus paid the price for us and therefore we are the inheritors of what he did. That's true to the extent to which we accept it. I can prefer a pencil to you and you can look at that pencil and say, yes, I'd like to have that pencil and I am willingly offering it to you but until you reach out and take it, it isn't yours and it's of no use. What Christ did is offered all the time to every person, but until we take hold of it, it might just as well not be offered. So it is our acceptance of Christ that allows this kind of grace to exist within us. And the way in which we accept Christ is that we come to a realization that Christ is the great need of our lives. We say to him, I reject all that I have done and all that I might do that is inconsistent with what you want of me. And I will accept you and your teachings as the basis for my living. And I will walk from henceforth in the holy ways laid out by you. So it is the power of God's grace, not anything that we do on our own other than to accept it. That's the power we possess to accept what God offers, and it is open to everyone. Everyone, not just denominational adherents, not just to Christians, not just to Jews. That offer is to every child that is ever born because at the moment of birth of every child that comes into the world biologically conceived and biologically developed at the time of birth god has breathed into that being a soul and that soul is our connection to god not our bodies our souls and then the next in the trilogy that the lesson covers Is judgment what a powerful word judgment is and the Bible tells us with unequivocally that judgment is a part of life death and after that the judgment and judgment has been portrayed in so many ways that is fearful Uh, one of the great Puritan preachers of the 18th century in 1741 Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, he titled, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And he described hell so vividly and God's justice so strongly that observers said that women fainted. And screams were heard all over the building for the fear that had been projected in that description of sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the Bible teaches judgment. Unequivocally, the Bible says that we shall be judged by the lives that we live. But the good news is, through Christ, is that in the moment of our acceptance of Christ, we face judgment and we are found not wanting because of what he has done that is our judgment and we pass judgment and we don't have to face judgment again because judgment has come and what was wrong jesus erased through his grace we no longer are who we are but what god wants us to be as though we had achieved it and then we live a life on that level from that time on. But for those who do not accept Christ, then judgment is that time come when the person's life ends, when he must justify the life that he has lived. And the cost of judgment for those who have not been reconciled to God is vividly described Classically, through a place of eternal flame and brimstone and burning. This is what caused the women swoon when faced with that possibility. But then there are more moderate ways of interpreting judgment, one being simply judgment is eternal separation from God, Certainly whatever judgment is, it's that. Because if our life ends and we are not reconciled to God, then we can no longer live with Him. And there is no worse hell than to be separated eternally from God if the soul is conscious after death there is no greater terror than living in darkness for eternity knowing that you have rejected the one thing could have brought you life and you didn't accept it and you know that there's no hope universalists say everybody is saved regardless I like that I I want I want to affirm that only one trouble the Bible doesn't teach it the Bible doesn't support it and if we can't have that so that everybody is saved then the next best thing as far as I'm concerned is the fact that the soul ceases to be at the time of death and therefore has no punishment just simply no longer exists and that isn't supported by scripture These are, at best, hopes. Scripture says that there is an eternal punishment. Whatever manner, God knows, we don't. But we know one thing which is above everything else. Death without Christ, death without reconciliation to God is eternal separation from God and those we love. Jesus said, if you come unto me and accept me you will never die because judgment has come with your acceptance and you will live forever And that brings us with the third trilogy and I'm running out of time and the third of the trilogy is eternal life what is the nature of our lives after death well the Jews said that the body and the soul cannot be separated that the one is dependent upon the other The Greek says that the body is evil and the soul is good and therefore they are at odds with one another. Instead of dependent upon one another, they are common enemies. And so life after death depends upon whether you see only the soul as experiencing eternity or body and soul as seen through the eyes of the Jew. That won't be known until we experience it and find for ourselves other than to say we are not a floating spirit if indeed only the spirit lives eternally because jesus said that we would be recognizable and we would recognize he himself after death was recognizable and paul said we do not yet know how we will be after death but we know that we will be like him And Jesus was recognizable, though his body was such as he could appear at different places in a moment's time, pass through doorways that were rigid. It was a kind of existence different from the body that he had before his death. However it might be, it is the way in which we will live eternity, encompassing everything that is good in this life, dismissing everything that we don't want to take into eternity with us and so either the body has a frame such as the jew would say the resurrected physical body or whether it is a spiritual body paul makes it pretty clear when he says there is a physical body and there is a spiritual body and the physical body will deteriorate and the spiritual body will live forever So the nature of our life after death is the best of everything that we experience in this world, void of everything that we want to leave behind. When do we inherit eternal life? Well, some say that the body, the soul goes into the grave with the body and remains there until the day of judgment when the trumpet blasts causes every grave to open and the spirit to come out the soul to arise scripture supports that there are others who say that at the moment of death the soul goes to the place where it will spend eternal habitation scripture supports that jesus said to the sinner on the cross today you will be with me in paradise When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration Elijah and Moses were there with him, not interred in a tomb somewhere. Both can be supported by scripture. And there's a third alternative that the early Christians developed and that of purgatory, that everyone went to purgatory. The earliest church fathers said that everybody was punished for a moment in purgatory of pain suffering beyond description until everything that is in them purged that ought not to be carried into eternal life that had been modified over the years to say simply that purgatory is a temporary resting place for those who do not inherit heaven but have a second chance and we can pray to get them out tetzel sold certificates of release from purgatory in order to build St. Peter's in Rome that brought about the Reformation but Protestants dismiss purgatory as a fact Martin Luther believed in purgatory he just didn't believe you could get him out by paying a priest until about 20 years after the Reformation and after thinking it through and translating the scriptures he dismissed it altogether and said there is no reason to believe in purgatory it does not exist Protestants do not believe in purgatory Roman Catholics continue to believe in purgatory and anyone who wants to can believe in purgatory but my concept is and that is that the moment that a person dies the soul is not entombed anywhere. It's free to go to the place where it will spend eternity. And every funeral that I have ever had, I have affirmed that above everything else. John isn't lying there the way we remember him. He is lying there. But John has received the benefits promised by the life that he has lived. The publisher of the newspaper Newport was a member of the Baptist Church. One day after a funeral in my Methodist Church, she came up to me and she said, Vance, I love going to your funerals. I go away feeling so good. And for the death of a saint, that's what it ought to be. Now, we don't have time for questions, but you don't need to. Everything I've said today will be on a piece of paper for you next week. And you can... Peruse it to your, the limit of your interest, and then any questions you might have, I will answer them and take care of them. Where's our esteemed president that left me on the alert here at the beginning? <laughs> Good lesson. Thanks. Happy birthday to each right? <laughs> Thank Sally Essen for the refreshments. Thanks, Sally. Uh visitors? Well okay. good. Glad to have you, Christy. Anybody else? Emmett? Susan Bramlett's parents are here. Uh one of my uh old bosses, Chris Bramlett, is why I had. <laughs> Emmett never had a boss. <laughs> <laughs>